Well, all throughout Ecclesiastes, uh, Solomon has been really honest about his foolish decisions. In fact, there, there have been occasions that his honesty has been, his transparency has been a, almost a little bit unsettling. It's like, wow, did he really just say that, you know? And, and so as he talks about these things, I, I really believe that Solomon is writing in hopes that we learn from his experience to prevent us from repeating his same mistakes, his same foolish decisions. He wants us to grow in wisdom, knowing how damaging, firsthand, how damaging those foolish decisions can be. So as we near the end of Ecclesiastes, he's going to get increasingly practical as he brings this to a close. He'll talk about the the impact of wisdom in our daily lives. And he does so by contrasting what it means to be wise and what it means to be Foolish. So wisdom and folly. And it's really important to understand what those two words mean in order to appreciate what Solomon is saying. Because a common misconception when we think about wisdom and folly is that it has something to do with intelligence or ignorance. But that's not what wisdom and folly are all about. Wisdom is not a matter of intelligence. In fact, some of the smartest people in the world today make some of the most foolish decisions. And at the same time, some of the most simple-minded people in the world can speak the most profound truths. So wisdom is not a matter of being, being smart or ignorant, nor is it an issue of being right or wrong. See, that's too easy. <laughs> wisdom doesn't come down to just moral issues. For example, Telling the truth is always the right thing to do, correct? But what if you're walking out the door to an event and your wife looks at you and says, I'm so excited. Do you like my dress? (laughs) There's only one right answer to that question, okay? (laughs) Wisdom and folly is not a matter of right and wrong. It's not a matter of being smart or ignorant From a biblical perspective, wisdom and folly is ultimately a matter of faith. Wisdom and folly is determined on where you place your trust. That's why in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, Solomon writes there and says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One brings understanding. It's where you place your faith. That's why the psalmist in Psalm chapter 14 verse 1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Those who are wise have learned to trust in God. As we talked about last week, they've relinquished control and have learned to rely on the Lord. Fools, on the other hand, trust in themselves. Their selfishness drives them to independence. Like we talked about last week, they want to be like God. Determine what's right and wrong and live according to their own standard. This morning, life or Solomon teaches how a life of wisdom takes time to build. And it must be careful and intentional because folly can destroy the work of wisdom in an instant. And so we want to talk about what it means to pursue wisdom on a daily basis so that it influences our actions, 
It influences our decisions, the words we speak, the work that we do. It should invade every aspect of how we live on a daily basis. So before we look at that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we want to be wise this morning by turning our attention to you, by relying on the truth of your word, even if it contradicts our own personal opinion. And if that were the case, that we would look at your word and we'd say, I'm going to live there. I'm going to believe that. That's where I will stand. So, Father, as we talk about this wise life, this daily pursuit, Lord, teach us what that needs to look like in each and every one of our lives, individually, personally. Shape our hearts to live a, a, a life of wisdom according to the truth of your word. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, if you would, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 10. And if you would, uh, read with me uh, beginning in verse 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 10, another one of uh, Solomon's very uh, interesting sayings. In verse 1 he says, Dead flies make a perfumer's oil stink. So a little foolishness is weightier than wisdom and honor. <laughs> this is a lot like we looked at last week when it says it's better to be a live dog than a dead lion. Okay, Same Kind of idea here, but really this verse sets the foundation for everything that follows. Solomon is highlighting the importance of wisdom and the power of folly. Wisdom is something that, that takes time to build. It, it's a process over time, but it can be quickly destroyed by folly in an instant. How many of you have, uh, remember as a kid, I remember setting up a domino train, right? Really carefully spacing each and every domino. I'd do it out on the kitchen floor, and, and then my little brother would walk in. And he'd touch just one, I only had to touch one of those dominoes, and it would destroy everything I took forever to build. Well, that's what foolishness does to wisdom's hard work. Proverbs tells us that wisdom is like honey sweet. It takes time. And Solomon is saying, that's true. Just make sure you don't let a fly get in the jar. And foolishness like that fly can turn something wise into something foul. As one person says, it's easier to make a stink than to create sweetness. And that's true. Look at how he continues in verse 2. It says, the wise man's heart directs him toward the right but the foolish man's heart directs him toward the left. And no, that is not a political commentary. Verse 3. Even when the fool walks along the road, his sense is lacking, and he demonstrates to everyone that he is a fool. What he's saying here is that a fool is, in a way, directionally challenged. A wise man at least knows how to read a map. A fool wanders aimlessly, refusing to take anyone's direction because they're convinced they know the right way, but they seem to be the only one who doesn't realize they're just going in circles. Their heart directs them to the left when they should have gone to the right. One person said, a wise man leads him aright, a, a, a fool just leads him astray. And notice, it's the heart. It's the heart that sets the course 
of a person's life. From a biblical perspective, the the heart is the, the seat of our affections. So what Solomon is saying here is that we are ultimately led by that which we love. So those who love what is good and true do what is right. And those who are driven by selfish desires do what is wrong. Look at how he continues in verse 4. It says, if the ruler's temper uh, rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allies great offenses. There is an evil I have seen under the sun like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places while rich men sit in humble places. I've seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves in the land. Solomon's first point here is that wisdom knows how to react to folly. He talks about a a ruler, a king who has a bad temper, but we could make this contemporary. It could be a boss. It could be a teacher, somebody who likes to throw their weight around. Because anytime you put a fool into a place of authority, they're going to create havoc. They're loose with their tongue and it ultimately exposes their foolish heart. But those who are wise are not easily moved by those foolish words. They don't match anger with anger. They don't go on the defense. In fact, their wisdom is often revealed in their silence. Their unwillingness to go to those dark places. Like Jesus, when they are reviled, they do not revile in return. Like Jesus, when they suffer unjustly, they do not make threats. This is the kind of wisdom that Solomon is talking about here. He says, the wise don't quickly abandon their position. The image that I have in mind here is this is someone who doesn't make quick judgments when they're in a hard place and say, fine, I don't have to put up with this. I'll just, I'll just take my toys and go to another sandbox. And there, there may be times when you may need to step away from a difficult situation, but just remember this. You cannot influence the foolish if you always live among the wise. Sometimes you need to be in a hard place to do the right thing. Even fools might be exalted to places of authority. The wise are content with humility. They don't have to ride on that high horse, if you will, that that Solomon is speaking about here, where everybody can see them and notice them and be impressed with them. They're okay with being in the streets where, where the people live because they can extend their influence to those around them. Serving the needs of others is more important than their own because the wise let their actions speak louder than their words. Look at how he continues in verse 8. He who digs a pit may fall into it, and, and a serpent might bite him who breaks through a wall. First, wisdom is made evident in our actions, and here we see how wisdom is made evident in our decisions. The foolish man is digging a pit, and he's digging that pit as a trap for someone else. But he ends up trapped in his own pit. Psalm chapter 7, verse 15, David speaks of something similar. It says, he has dug a pit and hollowed it out, and has fallen into the hole which he made. His mischief will return upon his own head, and his violence will descend upon himself. 
Fools get caught in their own traps. They're injured by their own sin. Their impulsive actions backfire against them. Look at how Solomon continues in verse 9. He who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and he who splits log may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and he does not sharpen its edge, then he must exert more strength. Wisdom has the advantage of giving success. If the serpent bites uh, before being charmed, there is no profit in the charmer. The wise person is ultimately more thoughtful than the fool. Instead of impulsive behavior, they make careful decisions. They work smarter, not harder. They realize that chopping logs with a dull axe just takes a whole lot more effort and a whole lot more time. The fool is the one who just rushes in to get it done. The wise man takes time to sharpen the axe, realizing that it'll make his job a whole lot easier in the long run. They take their time to do the job right. I told you before how I enjoy knives, and one of the things I was taught early on was that a, the, a dull knife is the most dangerous knife because the sharp knife does what it's supposed to do. A dull knife, you're extending all this extra effort trying to make it work because it's dull, and then it slips, and then you cut yourself, and that's how people get hurt. A dull knife is ultimately the most dangerous knife. See, the wise person employs patience in order to avoid danger. See, the same thing with the snake charmer. Now, I think snake charmers are foolish by nature, period. But anyway, for the sake of argument here, what Solomon is talking about is that there's a method to how they go about their craft, if you will. If you've ever seen these guys, they have this basket. And in this basket is a snake, usually a cobra. But if you'll watch, and trust me, I did it this week just to make sure this is true because of what Solomon is saying here, they always start playing their flute and making their movement before they ever lift the lid of the basket so that when they do, that snake is responding to something they've already initiated. Solomon is saying the people who get killed who are the ones who rush in without thinking about what they're doing, and the next thing you know, the snake's not responding to anything other than the threat in front of them. The wise person is patient. The fool is impulsive. The wise person is humble. The fool is prideful. The wise person is teachable. The fool is too talkative. Look at how he continues in verse 12. Words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, while the lips of a fool consumes him. The beginning of his talking is folly, and the end is wickedness and madness. Yet the fool multiplies words. No man knows what will happen, and who can tell him what will come after him? Solomon says that when the wise person speaks, his words are gracious. In other words, their speech is marked by kindness and generosity. They, if you will, choose their words wisely. But in order for that to happen, they have to be attentive to the other person. Kindness and, and, and generosity is determined by what you know the other person needs to hear. The fool is only concerned about what he wants to say. And the more a fool talks, the greater the chance is that they'll say something wrong. They're increasingly careless with their 
words. Solomon says the lips of a fool will consume him. He ends up contradicting himself or, or saying something that he should have never said. But once again, this, this goes back to an issue of the heart. The Bible says, out of the mouth speaks that which is in the heart. The good man, out of the good things in his heart, speaks good things. The foolish man, out of the foolish things in his heart, speaks foolish things. So in the same way that, that we are led by what we love, what is in our heart, we speak out of that which fills our heart. Our words either bring healing or hurt, depending on what is happening inside of our heart. I've said it before. I believe it's true. Hurt people hurt people. Wise people help people. That's what Solomon is saying here. Look at how he continues in verse 15. He says, The toil of a fool so wearies him that he does not even know how to go to a city. So we've talked about wisdom in our actions, wisdom in our decisions, wisdom in our words. And now Solomon talks about wisdom in our work. He's talking about how the wise person works hard, but the fool is hardly working. He's worn out by doing very little. He's just kind of going through the motions because his heart's not in it, literally. How many times have you done hard work, work that was strenuous, laborious, difficult, but it had purpose and meaning? And the time just flew by. As opposed to something that you really hated doing, your heart wasn't in it, you really didn't want to be there, and it's like time just drags on. That's the way the fool does every job. Because his heart is not in it. He's too lazy to enjoy his work. Solomon says that he's so lazy he can't even go into the city. Well, what that means to me is that inside the city is the marketplace. You work for a living so that you can go to the market and get what you need for your daily needs. The, the fool doesn't know how to go to the city because he'd rather get a handout from someone else. He's too lazy to work for his daily needs. Look at verse 16. Woe to you, O land, whose king is a lad, whose princes feast in the morning. Blessed are you, O land, whose king is of nobility, whose princes eat at the appropriate time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through indolence, the rafters sag, and through slackness, the house leaks. Men prepare meal for enjoyment, and wine makes life merry, and money is the answer to everything. Furthermore, in your bedchamber, do not curse a king. In your sleeping rooms, do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. After describing the person who doesn't like to work, Solomon speaks of the dangers of then making him a king. <laughs> he talks about a lad or a child. This is someone who's inexperienced, someone who has not worked their way to the throne. Maybe, maybe they've inherited it. And since they didn't earn the position, they don't necessarily respect the role. Instead of leading with integrity, they turn the palace into a party. We know that because of verse 16. Even the princes are fasting in the morning. In other words, the party starts early. The fool leverages his privileges for selfish gain, for personal enjoyment. Since they don't take care of the house, they're not worried about things going on around them. It crumbles, it's falling apart. And I think this has as much to do with how they live their life as well as 
the house that they're living in. Because you'll notice the wise man has to eat too. He just knows the, the right time and for what the right purpose. He's a good steward of what he has. He's a protector of those he leads. The fool is, is it's not only his house that's in disarray, it's his life that's in disarray. The fool just wants to have fun. He wants to drink lots of wine, make lots of money. In the end, this is an issue of self-discipline. Because if you cannot lead yourself, you have no business leading other people. If you can't be responsible with the little things, then you shouldn't be in charge of a lot of things. But the wise man knows that no matter how foolish or incompetent the leader may be, it's never right to curse him. Instead, it's always good to pray for him. It does no good to gossip about everything our leaders are doing wrong. And Paul tells Timothy, pray for your kings and for those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives full of godliness and holiness. I might add lives of wisdom. Be wise in your actions. Be wise in your decisions. Be wise in the words you speak. Be wise in the work that you do. And realize that, that wisdom is not just an issue of what's in your head. It's a matter of what's going on inside your heart. It's not the result of, of what you know as much as it is a matter of how you live. In fact, if you would turn to James chapter 3. I want us to to finish up with this passage in James chapter 3, verse 13. James chapter 3, verse 13. James will carry on this topic of wisdom that Solomon spoke extensively about. And he says in chapter 3, verse 13, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior in his deeds, and in the gentleness of his wisdom. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Verse 14, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but it's earthly, it's natural, it's demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. In this passage, James is teaching us that there's essentially two kinds of wisdom. There's worldly wisdom and there's heavenly wisdom. Those are the only two possible sources of wisdom. How you live is determined by the wisdom you possess. For example, the wisdom of this world leads you to a life of selfishness. It creates jealousy and strife when, when people get in the way of something that you want. But a truly wise person doesn't do things for glory or gain. They're gracious, giving. It says that their life is marked by gentleness and peace. They're known by their mercy and love. 
And I want you to notice that regardless of which one you're looking at, whether you're talking about worldly wisdom or, or heavenly wisdom, the two things, one, they take time to develop in a person's life and only because of what you're receiving, not what you are achieving. You either receive wisdom from the world or you receive wisdom from God. And the outcome of your life is determined by the hand of the giver. In other words, how you live is determined by who you trust. That's the heart of wisdom. How you live is determined by who you trust. James says that worldly wisdom is demonic because that's its source. Relying on the wisdom of the world means you trust in the ruler of the world, which is Satan. Relying on wisdom from above means you trust in the king of heaven, and that's Jesus. Your life will reflect which one is true. As Solomon says, you will be led by the one in which you love. Look again, if you will, at verse 18. And the seed, whose fruit is righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. I want us to think about that a minute. We kind of know how this works. First, you have a seed, right? You plant that seed into the ground. The seed produces a tree. The tree grows and matures. It produces fruit. Within the fruit is seed. That then falls to the ground. It creates more trees, more fruit, and the cycle continues. But my question is this. Where did the first seed come from? Where did all this begin? Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, answers that question this way. It says in verse 16, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham, and get this, to his seed. He does not say, uh, he clarifies, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the original seed. When we want to talk about where does wisdom originate, it ultimately originates with God. And any fruit of righteousness that is produced ultimately comes from Him. That's why it says in Philippians chapter 1, I want you to listen to this, beginning in verse 9. It says, In this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and in all discernment, or we might say wisdom so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled, here it is, with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Wisdom from above only comes through faith in Christ alone. Walking in wisdom ultimately comes from a daily pursuit of knowing and following Christ. It's, it's a life that is filled with, with, with faith-filled decisions, if you will. That's, that's what wisdom is. It's a life that, that is known by faith-filled decisions. A faith that shapes your actions, your decisions, your words, your work. It's a life that is centered on Christ instead of selfish desires. And here's the key. Wisdom ultimately transforms your life into the image of the one that you trust. That's the outcome. 
Wisdom ultimately shapes your life into the image of the one in whom you've placed your trust. So you can reverse that and say, well, if I want to know who I trust, then I need to look at my life. And what does it tell me? Where does your wisdom come from? Is it from the world because you look like the world? Or is it from Christ because you look like Christ? Your life will tell the story. So as we close in song this morning, let me encourage us to take those words to heart. And as we try to do, we, Brian and I talk every week about every song that's played on Sunday morning because we want it to, as best as we can, mirror and match the truths of our passage. And so as we talk about and, and, and pray through this together, I want us to sing this last song as a prayerful response to the truth of our passage this morning in a desire to walk in wisdom by following and walking with Christ. So if you would stand and let's sing together. As we've gone through Ecclesiastes, it's slightly exhausting <laughs> because Solomon is taking us down every single path he walked which led to a foolish decision which brought destruction and left him hopeless. And he's telling us about every one of these. And as we get to the end of Ecclesiastes, he's going to say, have you had enough? Because I want to tell you the only place that you're going to find hope and life and joy, and it's in Christ. It's in God. It's trusting in Him more than you trust yourself. If you want wisdom to live this life, then learn to love our God. When you follow Him, He will lead you into all the right places. Because he will, as we sang this morning, be with you. And he is for you. So as we carry out this this week, as we spend time with family, as we're enjoying our time together, let's be reminded, look, this life is short. It's a breath. It's a vapor. It's here and then it's gone. And there is goodness in this life, but only when our life is centered around God. And the blessings of who he is and what he brings and what we really are ultimately living for <laughs> is yet to come. So let's be thankful for what we have. Let's rejoice in what is coming. And let's center our lives on Jesus Christ, our Savior, our wisdom, our hope, our life. And let's love him with all our heart. Amen? Let me pray. Lord, thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for the blessing of this family. I pray that as we go in peace, we live in wisdom that we walk in faithfulness with the small and with the great. Lord, help us to enjoy our time together tonight as we gather as a church family and as we share a meal with every bite that we take and we enjoy the goodness of what hands have prepared. Let it remind us of the goodness that ultimately comes from you. Let, us point, let it point us. I, I just think of this Thanksgiving meal and I think, man, if this is so good, what's the marriage supper of the Lamb going to be? all of God's people sit around the table in his presence surrounded by his love washed by his forgiveness made holy and complete for all eternity may every bite we take tonight remind us of the eternity that we have with you we love you Jesus and thank you for your love for us we pray this in your name
Amen. Have a great day.